I like that's uh, turned in the Old Testament to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter nine. It's page one thousand and sixty-nine in the Pure Pew Bible. One thousand and sixty-nine. Prophecy of Isaiah. This is several hundred years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah writes, verse 1 Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, and when at first, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Sebulun and the land of Naphtali. And afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they defied the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel off or for the fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward even forever. The seal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Amen. Well, friends, this passage of Scripture, as we have been seeing uh, since we turned to this at the beginning of the month, provides for us one of the clearest and most meaningful prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah obviously writes in his own time. It was a time of confusion and uncertainty. A time of conflict and superstition. A time of uh, religious uh, decadence. But he writes as his own man. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. As Peter tells us in his little epistle in the New Testament. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah is enabled to describe the coming offense. With a certainty that speaks of completed action. Now, if we fail to understand this, we will go wrong very quickly. We will go wrong if we don't recognize that what will happen is described by Isaiah in terms of what has happened. And in the original Hebrew, for those of you who are interested, he uses the prophetic perfects to make that point. The very terminology and phraseology that he uses allows the reader to understand that although these offence that he's speaking about are yet future, he is absolutely convinced under the guidance of the Holy Spirit that what will be is in some realistic sense already the reality. The people 
he says that have been walking in darkness have seen a great light. Again, we see this metaphor of darkness and light. It runs all the way through the Bible. And the picture of darkness is a picture not only of the circumstances of of the people in Isaiah's day, it's certainly a picture of circumstances in our day. And it's certainly a, a fitting picture, a fitting description of circumstance, the circumstances in each of our lives by nature. You know, as men and women, uh, we are alienated and separated from God. And the Bible says that we are in a state of darkness uh, because of our sinfulness. Uh, we're, either, uh, we're rebellious by nature uh, either actively so or possibly, you know, we're just indifferent to God. But uh, sin is the problem. Now, uh, the Bible explains that we find ourselves in the dominion of darkness by our very nature. And the only way that we could ever be uh, taken out of the kingdom of darkness and be in God's kingdom of light is a result of God coming to us. And God taking the initiative. And that's what we've been remembering over the past number of weeks uh, in the lead up to the Christmas period. Uh, that God has come into the world. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And it's when we come into his kingdom that we're taken out of that kingdom of darkness. So as we have considered Isaiah 9 verse 6, not for the first time, obviously over the years have been with yourselves. I guess it's only our familiarity uh, with this passage that really stops us from being completely stunned by it, completely knocked, knocked out by it. Uh, amidst all of the war, all of the despair, the darkness, the gloom, the death that Isaiah is writing about, nevertheless, Isaiah says, nevertheless, all of that, darkness, that gloom, that war, that despair, it's all going to be wrapped up. And why is this? Well, he says, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. You see, friends, the answer to oppression, the answer to warfare, to despair, to all the darkness and all the sin is not found in the ideas of man. You know, how far we do want me to go back? You know, man says, if only we could all get around the table and sit down and talk like uh, mature adults, as enlightened people, and surely we could solve all of these problems that we're facing in the world. Well, how far do you want to go back with that scenario? The Congress of Vienna in 1814-15, following the Napoleonic Wars, and they tried to sort out the problems of Europe. And then you get First World War, followed by the League of Nations. Can't have that, another war like that war. 20 years later, Second World War, United Nations. Can't go on. We have to get together. Surely we can be mature adults, sit around the table, Sort out our differences. The European Union. Do you want another war like this in Europe? Surely we can all sit down and agree. And sort out our differences. But it hasn't happened. Still wars. Still fighting. Still conflict. Still disharmony. Still despair. Still oppression. 
Still darkness. You see, the answer to oppression, to warfare, to despair, to all the darkness, all the sin, is not found in a concept that the Bible urges us to understand, but it's found in the Christ that the Bible urges us to trust and to embrace. And in this Christ, this Messiah, he is the light of the world. He is the light of men. Now, the child, as we have noted, has a number of names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we know from our reading of the New Testament that Jesus is never referred to specifically by any one of those, uh, those names, those designations. So what is the prophet Isaiah doing here? Well, the prophet Isaiah is encapsulating, seeking to summarize the wealth, the grandeur, the significance of the arrival of this child. This child that we have been considering as a child who is born to be king. His kingdom, as we see there in verse 7, is different from any other kingdom. He is going to establish his government in peace. His principle will be principles of righteousness. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it, establish it, it with uh, judgment and justice from that time forward and forever. He produces uh, this uh, kingdom that will be marked by justice. So he's not going to establish a kingdom by the force of imperialism or the force of tyranny. He's not going to beat back oppression with oppression. In other words, he's not going to overturn, overturn the coercive arrogance of the proud dictators of the world by taking them on at their own game. But actually, this king is going to come meek and lowly in heart riding, not on a white charger, but actually on a donkey, on the colt of a donkey into Jerusalem. And the peace that he brings is lasting peace. And the kingdom that he establishes will never, ever come to an end. That's what makes this so enigmatic, isn't it? This is what makes this so profound. Where has there ever been a government that has established peace and that will not end? You know, you can search and feign through the annals of history. You will not find one. Where might we, where might we look for a king who will emerge and his reign will be marked by Justice and righteousness. You're not going to find one. There's no king that reigns forever. That we can find in the annals of human history. There is no establishment of peace. That is everlasting and eternal in its uh, significance. Save, accept what we find in this, uh, this prince of peace that we've been considering over the past uh, Uh, Four weeks. Who comes as king. So three words to help us gather our thoughts this morning. The first word is expectation. The second word is fulfillment. And the third is application. So firstly expectation. These verses that we have become familiar with. 
are in keeping with the rest of the Old Testament. Now, I don't want to weary you, but uh, with this being the last day of 2023, it will be useful to conduct a year-end review, um, reminding ourselves of these familiar truths. So with that in mind, just let's conduct a very quick rush through the history of the Old Testament in this matter of expectation. Very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Uh, that book ends with this expectation. In Genesis chapter 49, the blessings of Jacob are extended uh, to his sons. And he says to his son Judah, he says in Genesis 49 verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between the feet, uh, his feet until Shiloh comes. The NIV translates it, this scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come. So the reader knows that there's going to be somebody who's going to come. And this somebody who's going to come uh, will have a scepter and he's, he will rule and he will reign. But at this point in Genesis 49, we don't know who it is. We know that it's going to be a male because in Genesis 3:15, after the fall of man, God says that he's going to send a deliver and deliverer and he will, you know, crush Satan's head. So we know it's going to be a male. We know it's going to come from Abraham because God calls Abraham from the Ur of the Chaldees. Genesis 12, Genesis 17, we know it's going to come from Abraham's lines. Becoming more specific, okay? It's going to come from a particular uh, tribe within the, uh, the house of Israel, uh, the tribe of Judah. You move into Exodus chapter 15, the song of Moses after the great deliverance from Egypt. Moses is singing, and he really gets a jump start on the Hallelujah Chorus. Exodus 15, verse 18, he's singing... The Lord shall reign forever and ever. His sister Miriam, uh, she's playing her tambourine. And you can picture her saying, you know, Moses, what is it you're singing about there? Uh, You're talking about uh, this Lord will reign forever and ever. What what do you mean by that? Uh, And Moses saying to her basically, well, I haven't got the whole picture, Miriam. But I know that the king who has been promised, he will come. And he will reign forever and ever. We just have to be patient and wait and see. It's our expectation that God will be faithful to his promises. The book of Judges ends with the refrain. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the inference is, and the expectation of the people was, you know, if we could just get a king, maybe we could fix the mess that we're in. Uh, We'd like to have a king. And despite the fact that it was a lack of faith, because they had a king in God, obviously, but God granted them their requests and gave them kings. But even the best of their kings weren't that good. You know, Saul was impressive, but he failed politically. David was incredible. But he failed morally. Solomon, quite phenomenal. Wisest man who ever lived. And yet he failed religiously. His many wives turned his heart away from God. So 
Now the people who wanted a king and got a king and have had the best of the kings find themselves saying we don't just need a king. We need a perfect king. And someone may have said to a friend, well, where on earth do you think you're ever going to get a perfect king? And friend replies, I don't know. But we have these promises that have been given. That there will be a king. A king who will, better, who will be better than all of the ones that we've had thus far. We just have to be patient and we have to wait. It's what we expect. What you find when you read through the Old Testament is that expectations, the expectations of the people, finally outgrew the ability of any mere mortal to fulfill the job description of this coming Messiah. When they conceived of the kind of king that they would need, they realized, you know, when they started to put the profile together, when they started to put the picture together, you know, the character requirements of this king. They looked around them and said, there has never been. And there is apparently not ever going to be anyone that is ever going to be able to fill our expectations. Because the job description of the person who's um, been given to us, it has to be without blemish. He has to be perfect. He has to be sinless. And that consistent expectation of the Old Testament became an urgent expectation. And the closer you get to the end of the Old Testament, especially since the people by this time are aware of the promise of God that he had made to uh, King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that through the line of David there will come an eternal and universal king who will bring peace. And the people were able to say, you know, well, God had promised that through the line of David, who is from the tribe of Judah, you know, there's going to be a king. And we're going to be waiting and watching for this king to come. Expectation. You see, that's why it's so important to be students of the whole Bible and not just students of the New Testament. Because you see, if you come to the second act of the drama, New Testament, you don't know who the characters are in the play. And if you stay in the first act, the Old Testament, well, you know the characters, but you don't know the end. That's why we need to read our Bibles. And the Old Testament closes with this unanswered question about this coming king, this coming Messiah. And there's silence for 400 years in that intertestamental period, the time between the Old Testament closes and the New Testament opens. What's going on during that intertestamental period, during those 400 silent years, as we call them? Well, we know from secular history that people went about their business. Babies were being born. People were getting married. Religious leaders did the religious thing. You know, pagans continued to worship the earth. Life went on. People came, people went, people died. Kingdoms came, people, uh, kingdoms fell. Generations come, generations go. And there would have been those who were the fight. 
who were living in expectation, waiting for the king to arrive. And they would have been telling their children, listen, children, God has promised King David that a Messiah would come, a king would come through his line who will reign and will deliver us from oppression and tyranny and all of these things that we're facing today. And the children said, when's that going to happen? And dad would have said, well, we don't know, but we are living in expectation because God is faithful to his promises. And the father died. And the little boy became a man. And the man became the father and the father became the grandfather. And the grandchildren asked the granddad. And the granddad gave them the same story. And the grandchildren became grand. Uh, grandfathers themselves and they passed on what they had been told so with each passing generation there was expectation perhaps the king will come perhaps he who has promised will come this year maybe even today which brings us to the second word fulfillment Because when you read on in the Bible and you get into the beginning of the New Testament, you find exactly what you would expect to find. Matthew chapter 1, the arrival of the long-promised Messiah is announced. Verses 22 and 23 of Matthew chapter 1. All this was done that it might be fulfilled. Fulfillment. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Saying behold the virgin will be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel which is translated God with us. You go into Matthew chapter 2. The opening words. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah. In the days of Herod the king. Behold wise men came from the east to Jerusalem saying where is he who is born king of the Jews. For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes and the people together, he acquired of them, where is this Christ to be born? So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, the prophet Micah. And it comes out in Luke's gospel also. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And so they all uh, went up to their own city to be registered. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with his wife Mary, who was betrothed because she was with child. None of that means anything to anybody who hasn't been reading the Old Testament. You know, Bethlehem, what on earth is that all about? But anyone who's been reading the Old Testament, as soon as you read Bethlehem, ding, goes the bell. And you're able to go back to the book of Ruth, aren't you? When she is uh, working in the barley fields and along comes Boaz. And the two of them fall in love and get married. And they have offspring. And they become the grandparents of uh, of David. 
So do you see, from expectation to fulfillment, it comes as no surprise when the angels make their announcement to the shepherds in the fields around Bethlehem, the very fields where David kept the sheep before he was made king. They don't say to, today a saviour has been born to you, but they say there is born to you this day in the city of David. Because you're expecting this king to be born in the city of David, Bethlehem. And born there today as a saviour who is Christ the Lord. Here then is fulfilment. Which gives rise to the carol that we've been singing. Once in royal David's city stood a lowly cattle shade. Where a mother led her baby in a manger for his bed. Mary was that mother mild Jesus Christ her little child. And the carol advances, doesn't it? And you get to the fifth verse. And our eyes at last shall see him through his own redeeming love. For that child so dear and gentle is our Lord from heaven above. Expectation. Fulfillment. Jesus steps onto the stage of history. And the Gospels record that he goes around the towns and the villages of Judah. And he does what we would expect him to do. He fulfills what we would expect him to fulfill. Essentially, he proclaims the good news of the kingdom. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Christ came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, saying, The time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, turn from your sin, and believe in the gospel. You see what Jesus is saying. He is saying, I am the king that was prophesied. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. And I'm putting the kingdom together. And that's why he does his miracles. It's an indication, it's a, it's a proof, it's authentication of the fact that the king has come. The kingly rule, his royal reign has begun. You see, only God the creator can control the wind and the waves. Jesus did that. He calmed the storm in the Sea of Galilee. Only God the creator has the power to give life. He did that. He raised Lazarus and a couple of others from the dead. Indications of what he will do at the end of time when he raises everyone from the dead. And there's the great assizes as we come to judgment. And he's able to do that because he's the king. Okay. This is what you're thinking. If you have been thinking. Understandably thinking. Billy. If what you're saying is the case, that Jesus is the king and he has a kingdom, would you please tell me what in the world's going on? Because it seems to me that we don't see any of this liberation from tyranny. We don't see any of this lasting peace. We don't see any of this healing from sickness that you're talking about. And that's exactly right. So let me give you just one verse, which is not a proof text, but it's, in, it's indicative of a whole uh, succession of Bible verses that reinforce this distinction. And if you take notes, as some of you do, all you need to write down is this. Already, 
Daesh, not yet. Okay, already, not yet. When you read about the fulfillment of the kingdom promises in Jesus, they are fulfilled absolutely, completely, finally, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no successor to the Messiah. We're not waiting for another prophet. You know, Muhammad wasn't the next prophet after Jesus. Jesus was the last prophet. Jesus was God's final word. There's no other king to come to reign upon the throne. He is the king. But his kingdom, which has begun, has not yet been brought to completion. That's why we read from the book of Hebrews. After Jesus is introduced in Hebrews chapter 1 in all of his grandeur and glory. It says in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. Well first 8 anyway. God put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. So God didn't leave, leave any loose ends. Uh, there's nothing hanging out there that you know isn't under his sovereign rule, the kingly rule of Jesus. But, says the writer to the Hebrews, Now we do not yet see all things put under him. Verse 9, but we see Jesus. And that's the truth, isn't it? We don't see everything put under him yet. Death is the last enemy to be destroyed. But it hasn't been fully dealt with yet, has it? You say, well, how do you know? Well, because unless the Lord Jesus Christ returns, they're going to announce your death. And they're going to announce my death. But we know death has already been dealt with at the cross. Satan is a defeated foe. You know, Christ in his atoning death played the one move on the chess board of redemptive history that declares checkmate. If you're a chess player, you will know that even when, chess, when checkmate is declared, it's possible to play out some other moves on the board, but they will not alter the outcome of the game. Checkmate can't be reversed. It's cured. It's sealed. It's done. And that's what happened at Calvary. That's what happened in the death of Christ and in his resurrection. He's dealt with all of that. We do not as yet see everything subject to him. True. But we see Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, we see the one who will come a second time. We are also waiting an expectation. We're waiting the Messiah coming again to make all things new. When he will establish his supremacy and his authority forever. And so finally and briefly, application. The promise of Jesus is king. This has an inherent challenge to it, doesn't it? And the inherent challenge is this. That since the Lord Jesus Christ comes as king and as priest and as prophet. He comes to deal with our ignorance of the things of God. He reveals God to us. He comes to speak to us from God. Tells us what God would say to us. And he represents us to God. He is the perfect man. He is the second Adam. 
He becomes our sacrificial offering on the cross. He comes as king to reign and to, to, to subdue the tyrannical forces that are operative inside of us. Okay, we're always thinking, what about out there and them getting their act together? Christ is saying, I'm here to sort out in here. I'm here to sort out the tyrannical forces in you, the sin in you. And he comes to make us new creatures. Sin no longer has dominion over us when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said a few moments ago, by nature we belong to the kingdom of darkness. But when we are transformed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are brought into the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of light. Jesus declares that he will cleanse all who come on to him in faith. And he secures a people for himself. He brings them out of darkness, puts them into his light, and they in turn are supposed to shine as lights in the darkness. That's a challenge for us for 2024. That's how people who are Christians are supposed to live, as lights in this dark world. And that's how people who are not Christians are supposed to see a little glimmer of Christ's kingly rule in the lives of his people. We're supposed to be shining for Jesus in this world. And the challenge is significant, isn't it? Because it is a challenge of a king who comes to reign. It's fascinating, isn't it? All the things that have been done with Jesus over the past 2,000 years. You know, he's a wonderful stained glass window in many a church building. You know, but a stained glass window holds no threat to anybody. It's just something to look at. He's a nativity scene. They get packed away and put in a box. People can ignore it for the next 12 months. Might come back again next year. Might not. He's introduced to us in some quarters as an itinerant preacher. You know, a rambling preacher who just said some good things. Did the odd novel trick. So that people might consider him. It's very absorbable Christ, isn't it? Very ignorable Christ. But that's not the Christ that we're introduced to in the pages of the Bible. The Christ that we're introduced to in the pages of the Bible is this wonderful counselor. He has a plan from eternity. He is the mighty God. He is able to, you know, execute his plan. He is the everlasting father, never letting us go. He is the prince of peace that is eternal and his reign will be forever and ever. Are you not fascinated, intrigued by the opposition, you know, to the Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't it ironic that the opposition to Jesus is so forceful? You know, keep quiet. Don't force yourself on us. So famine from the lips of those who are not Christians. You know, from the ones who say that he doesn't exist. From the ones who say that he's not irrelevant. From the ones that say, you know, he's just 2,000 year old history. From the ones that tell us he's just a rambling prophet. He's just a stained glass window. He's just a nativity scene. Okay. Yeah, if, that, if, that's, if that's the deal, you know, why are they so concerned about stifling what we proclaim as Christians? Why are they so concerned about him being in schools? 
Why are they so concerned about him being in the city? You know, what do they have to fear from a rambling dreamer? What do they have to fear from a stained glass window? What do they have to fear from a historical non-entity? Why are people so opposed to him? They're so opposed to him because they know that he is the king. Because God has put eternity in their hearts. And just like they were in the first century, so they are in the 21st century. They are saying, we will not have this man to rule over us. Well, that's a challenge. And there's also the comfort, isn't there? There's also the comfort because at the cross, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And since he has taken such lengths to deal with our most fundamental problem and predicament, the problem of sin, he is the only one. He's the only one to whom we can go to. He's the only one in whom we can trust. And as we go from 2023 into 2024, you can trust him. You can trust him in your tragedies, in your disappointments. You can trust him with your hurts. You can trust him with your fears. You can trust him with your losses. You can trust him with all your failures. You can trust him with your loved ones. Because he is absolutely 100% reliable. He is faithful. And he is the forever king.